From News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. The San Joaquin Valley, one of the nation's most important agricultural regions, is dealing with growing water stress and a number of related environmental and public health challenges. Large parts of the valley, for example, have become increasingly dependent on unsustainable groundwater pumping. How do we tackle the valley's water issues in a cooperative, coordinated manner? We'll ask our guest, Ellen Hannock, director of the Water Policy Center for the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California, and lead author of a report entitled Water Stress and a Changing San Joaquin Valley. The San Joaquin Valley's Water Challenges, a comprehensive review. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. Maddie. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. Water is the foundation of America's most productive farmland, California's San Joaquin Valley. Recently, the nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California published a comprehensive report dealing with the valley's growing water imbalance and what it means not only for valley agriculture, but the valley's environment and public health. Ellen Hannock, the director of the PPIC's Water Policy Center and the author of that report is our guest. Welcome to the Matter Report. Thank you. So how did the ag industry become so dominant in the San Joaquin Valley? You know, ag has really been a key industry in the San Joaquin Valley since the 19th century. And it's continued to really be a, a big part of the economy even to, the day, to this it's, day. It's changed over time though, hasn't it? It has changed a lot. It continues to change. It's a very dynamic and creative sector. It used to be cotton was, was very, very big and now that's not so much. Other, other crops are more important. Even, you know, you go not that far back, 1980, there were over a million acres of cotton irrigated and now it's, we're down to, you know, practically trace amounts of, of cotton. What's happened over time since then is big expansion in orchards, both for nuts and for, for almonds. fruits. Almonds, you know, you drive around right now, they're in flower, they're uh -huh. beautiful. Um, and also um, a big expansion in dairy yeah. and the crops related to that. So uh, it, there's kind of some confusion about the size of farms. And are they large, are they small, are they some kind of combination? All of the above, okay. yeah. We were quite surprised to see this actually. There are about 20,000 irrigated farms in the eight county San Joaquin wow. Valley. And so uh, the, the acres you're talking about, I think you said in your report that farms with less than 500 acres are about 25% That's of right. irrigated uh, farms. So it's not as large as maybe some people think. Uh, well, you know, it's right. So you've had some consolidation happening over time, and there are some very big farms, but there's still just a lot of farms that are not that big. Actually, one of the biggest categories is quite tiny farms of 10 acres or less. Yeah, but they're very important for some of the local economies. Exactly, and for some communities. Yeah. You know, your farmer's markets, those are often going to be those little farms. Yeah, and those are increasingly cropping up, no pun intended, <laughs> you know, in the area. Um, let me ask you about how farmers are doing economically. Are they doing well or so, not so well? You know, farming is one of those risky jobs in the sense that, you know, you got to worry about all your inputs, but then you also got to worry about what's going to happen to your crop prices. And those move around a lot. But I can say that you know, over time, revenues have been increasing. Inflation-adjusted revenues have been increasing quite a bit in the valley. And that's because of these crop shifts. And you know, people like the, 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 both California national and international markets like California products. I'm just, I'm just wondering, I don't, I don't want to get too far afield here, but just the, uh, the situation with the trade with, with other countries, that's going to really impact California agriculture, I assume. It could, you know, 
I think California ag would like the market to stay open for California produce. A lot of the stuff ends up in Asia, and so uh, mm -hmm. that, that's going to have some big implications. You know, uh, the, what are some of the new management challenges uh, that have come about as a result of, you know, different crops? You've got increased dairies, and, and frankly, the growing vulnerability to water scarcity. Right. So, you know, Valley's a great place for agriculture if you can add the water, because it's pretty dry here in the summer. Um, that means you can manage crops very well if you can add the water, but water is a scarce uh, commodity here, and it's going to become scarcer over time as the region has to get its groundwater basin into balance. So you've got, so you've got uh, situations where the w price of water is going up. Farmers are making a decision, probably an economic decision, based on what's the most, you know, uh, the one that's going to produce the most money, most revenue right. per acre, I suppose. Right, and so definitely uh, Valley Ag is becoming more water efficient, both in terms of the irrigation technology, but also how many dollars each drop of water is, is generating, and that's the crop choices especially. It, it also impacts, you know, the stuff that we have in the valley. We have, you know, vineyards and we have, you know, trees, um, and we also have just field crops. Mm -hmm. I assume that that's also an implication here with, with less water or water scarcity. Well, right. So it's kind of this trade-off because farmers have gone more toward the, the orchards and the vineyards because that generates a lot of revenue per unit of, of water, but you also cannot fallow that in, in a year where water's really tight. So during this recent drought, that was a lot of farmers were really on pins and needles about that. Fortunately, many of them could pump extra groundwater. But still, so you, you saw some, some of that land coming out of production. Because there's an investment. Once they, they get the tree finally producing, and if they have a bad water situation, yeah. they lose that asset. You know, you think about it, we have a drought every summer, right? You've got to water those trees, or else they, they don't stick around. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Well, thanks for that overview of the changing nature of the Valley's agriculture. Up next, uh, what about the issue of growing water scarcity? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Hepler with the Maddie Institute. One of the many challenges facing San Joaquin Valley agriculture is the issue of water scarcity. Perhaps it's the most important issue. Simply stated, the region has more productive farmland than local water supplies can support. So even importing uh, water from elsewhere has not resolved the water issue. And there's a related problem of groundwater overdraft. We're discussing the Valley's water issues with Ellen Hannock, a, a water policy expert with the PPIC. Um, how has wa water uh, management changed in the Valley over time? So, you know, the valley is a great place to grow things if you can irrigate. Um, and already back in the 1920s, um, folks had started to, to pump groundwater. Technology made some good pumping available. And you started to see this problem of more groundwater being taken out of the ground on average every year than the amount that gets naturally recharged from the rain and from being adjacent, adjacent to rivers. So over time, this problem started leading to land sinking. Subsidence, and they call subsidence. that. Subsidence. Right? And, and that was actually one of the impetuses for some of the big projects that now deliver water from Northern California through the Delta to the valley. Um, if you're on the west side of the valley, you see the Delta Mendota Canal, California Aqueduct. On the east side, the Fryant Kern Canal. Those are projects that are all part of getting surface water to places that were pumping more groundwater. Um, and that's been helpful, but it just hasn't been enough. So, so you're talking in your report about this water balance or imbalance uh, in the San Joaquin Valley. What are the numbers? Where does the water come from, and where does it go to in the valley? Right. So we looked for the last 30 years, and on average, what we found is that a bit over half, 56%, comes from local sources, and that means the water up in the Sierra coming down through all of the rivers on the east side, 
all the way, you know, down from the Kern all the way up to the San Joaquin, and then water that rain, you know, rainfall on the valley floor, that's 56%. That gets used directly so more as... more than half comes from local supplies. More than half, yeah. And that gets used both as surface water and that gets used as, as what we'd call sustainable groundwater because some of it recharges the basins and people pump it out. About a quarter comes from imports, and that is water that comes down from Northern California through the Delta, through uh, the pumps at Tracy, and then goes into canals and goes onto so Valley Farmland. So the Delta is very significant. Very significant, a quarter on average of all the water that is used in the San Joaquin Valley. And then there's a little sliver that gets directly pulled out of the Delta, 6%, and then the rest, 13%, that is what we call groundwater overdraft. Yeah, and you were, you were talking in your report about this diminishing groundwater reserves. Um, what's happening in the valley? So groundwater overdraft is when you're taking out more than the amount that gets recharged, and what that leads to is the water table falls, so you have to pump deeper and deeper. That means some of the shallow wells go dry. It also can affect your water quality, because sometimes deeper water is not uh, in as good shape. It also leads to land sinking, or what we call subsidence. So in some places, you've got infrastructure that's being damaged Roads, by this. Roads, canals. Bridges, all I've also that. heard that, that you know, when the water is taken out, sometimes that formation can collapse, and so you lose that aquifer. It's well, you, you lose some of that, some of that mm -hmm. aquifer. You, we have ginormous aquifers in this valley, mm -hmm. so you're not going to lose the whole thing. Okay, so um, what started this kind of accelerated overdrafting uh, beginning around 2000? So it's been very dry. The, you know, we just got through, I, I'm going to call it and say that we're pretty much through the, 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 the latest drought because it's been so wet this year. But we had five years of, of really dry conditions. But if you look, the whole last 15 years have been drier on average than any time since the 1920s. So there's just been less surface water available to recharge our groundwater basins. That's one. Second is that more water is now coming through the delta and going all the way down to Southern California than before. And this is, you know, fair and square, it's Southern California's water. They have contracts just like folks in the valley do for some of that water. But in the old days, they weren't taking it all. So the farmers were able to get that water. Farmers got it for next to nothing. And now about half a million acre feet are going all the way down to Southern California. So this all resulted in the state law in 2014 regulating uh, managing groundwater. We were one of the last states to actually do that. Um, we were the last Western state. The last, behind Texas. Yes, okay, behind so, Texas. So what did, what did that law do? So that law is very uniquely Californian in spirit because it's all about local control um, and it, what it says is that folks who are using groundwater at the level of individual groundwater basins have to get together, develop groundwater sustainability agencies to manage that groundwater, develop groundwater sustainability plans with a, a long-term plan for bringing that groundwater basin into balance and managing it sustainably, and then they've got to implement that. Yeah, sustainability is the key word there. Right? I mean, right. something that's going to be able to last over time. Over time. Um, so do you think the groundwater deficit can be closed? It can be closed. Um, it's not going to be easy to close it. Uh, and, and you can think about filling that gap in two ways. One way is adding more water. So bringing in more water from, you know, capturing more water from the, from the Sierra, for example, or, you know, potentially more imports. And then the other way is reducing the amount that you're pumping, so reducing use. And demand, and that can happen all kinds of ways, including changing the crops and those kinds of things. Yeah, but it's especially going to involve probably taking some land out of production. Okay. Oh, well, thanks for discussing that uh, issue of, of groundwater uh, overdrafting. It's a pretty big issue. We'll have to keep an eye on that. Up next, we're going to talk about the environmental and health uh, trade-offs of valley agriculture and what can be done to mitigate them. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report.
Welcome back. I'm Mark Hebler with the Maddy Institute. Uh, beyond water scarcity, there are a number of other issues and challenges for Valley agriculture. One is uh, the environmental and the other is public health. What are the trade-offs that we have to deal with when we're dealing with this in farming regions? Our guest is Ellen Hannock, director of the PPIC's Water Policy Center. And one of the issues here is water quality, um, particularly nitrate contamination after decades of fertilizer use and dairy manure on fields. Um, how extensive is the problem and what can be done to address it? The problem is pretty extensive, especially in the southern part of the valley, in the Tulare Basin, um, very much tied to where the dairies are right now. Um, and the estimates that came out a couple years ago about this were that there are about 250,000 residents whose water sources are potentially contaminated by nitrate, which is a pretty dangerous thing at high levels. Yeah, that was a pretty big report they did a few years ago. That was a big study, and it was, you know, it was long in coming, really, and it was, you know, a credit to the, the environmental justice community for really pushing to kind of get this on the radar at the state level. And that was, that's about, I think I was reading your report, about 11% of, of that region's population. Correct. And that can cause some serious medical issues, a blue baby syndrome. Blue baby is syndrome is the one that, you know, especially, you know, vulnerable populations are always the ones most affected by these kinds of things, and young children especially. Okay, so that's one issue. Another issue deals with salt accumulation um, in soils and in groundwater. It causes another problem. Um, what's causing that, and, and how is the problem being addressed? So salt is one of those things, it's, it's a tough one, because some of it is just here. It's in the soil, it's in the water. It's naturally occurring. Naturally occurring. Now, agriculture kind of can stir it up and mobilize it and, and, and accelerate that problem. We also import salt into the valley from the delta. So the same imports that are helpful from a water supply perspective, we're also bringing in some salt with that. Oh, that's interesting. Um, the other issue uh, is air quality. So um, there have been noticeable improvements in air quality in the San Joaquin mm -hmm. Valley over the years. It, it still, though, has the worst air quality in the nation. Um, part of this is the natural environment. We live in a, this gigantic bowl um, surrounded by mountains. Uh, and, and there's also this, it's growing, right? So there's more traffic, and mm -hmm. that's causing, uh, contributing to the problem as well. But what about farming operations? What impact did they have on air quality? So if you think about it, you know, farming uh, stirs up the air, and there's, there's dust, there's, you know, particulate matter, sort of some of the big particles that can, can cause asthma and, and other, other problems. And so over time, Valley Agriculture has been uh, you know, one of the regulated um, industries in order to manage that dust, especially, you know, sort of when, when tractors and other farm equipment is moving on fields, also managing ag waste. So, you know, there was a move toward biodigesters, but that has uh, run into some economic difficulties. Uh, so so those, those are some ongoing things that, that farm managers have to really consider. I was looking at this air quality issue a while ago and, and found that uh, it's actually diesels in the valley. It's diesel engines that are causing the majority of the air quality problem. And mm -hmm. so farms also, I mean, if they're, they've got diesel pumps. Right. Um, they're being retrofitted and changed out. Exactly. They've also got uh, heavy-duty trucks and track old tractors. I mean, some of these tractors, they literally are using these things for 30, 40 years. Sure. You know, they're, they're going to be frugal with their... I, I remember seeing, equipment. actually, I remember seeing, I was driving through the valley, and I saw a tractor that my dad had in the 1970s, and at that point, it was 20 years old. Right. So, so they, they drive them. They double use, classics. But they're right. very, the good news is they're very efficient using things and fixing them up and keeping them going. Uh, the problem is there's some air quality issues associated with that. Let's talk about... Um, some of the other environmental impacts and implications for agriculture. It's not uncommon in agricultural regions that commercial farming you know, transforms the natural environment. It's done it here as well. In, in what ways? So you, you think about it, the valley floor has over 5 million acres of irrigated cropland. 
at any given time. And in addition, there's some fields that are that are lying fallow. So you know the combined footprint is is, is even larger of agriculture. Um, we've change the way water moves. You know, it doesn't move naturally through rivers anymore. We kind of bring it through canals and change the timing of it. So the land has changed, the water movement has changed, and that has been hard on the, the critters that live both in the rivers, in the wetlands, and in the upland areas, in the valley. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I think I was reading somewhere that the soil in the valley, actually, they actually rate soil, uh -huh. and the soil in the valley is among the richest, the best in the world. And so it's not surprising you had great soil with water and sunshine, mm -hmm. and you have the San Joaquin Valley. Um, so what does the future hold when it comes to the balance of these interests uh, between ag interests and you know, conservation interests? Where's the future? So I'm an optimist about this, and I think that um, a lot of folks from the various sides of this issue really want to get to find common ground for ways that you can manage farms so that they're making money and also provide some benefits for the environment. And I think you're starting to see this in, in a number of places, sort of pilot, pilot work in where, you know, working lands, farmers are making some of their uh, areas available for, for habitat. Uh, I think with water, which is water allocation, which is the trickiest and the one people fight over maybe the most, there are ways forward in terms of finding some, some kind of compromise solutions that get you multiple benefits, yeah. ideally. And we're going to talk about those in a moment, but thank you for talking about these environmental and public health mm -hmm. trade-offs that we're dealing with. So we're going to talk about some possible solutions in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. So how do we balance the water needs of Valley's agriculture with the environmental needs of the region? What approaches show the most promise? We're talking with Ellen Hannock, a water policy expert with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California. It seems to be kind of a simple supply and demand issue here. Um, you know, there's a basic imbalance between the Valley's local and imported water supplies and its water demands. So how do we close that gap? Well, you can close it in two ways. You can add some more supplies, or you can reduce demand. And my sense is that the solutions are going to vary across the valley, because the problems, the extent of the problem is different. Some places have a bigger gap to fill than others. Um, and you know, it's going to also depend on what kind of funds people can mobilize to, to, to add the supplies. <laughs> you know, let, let's talk specifically about groundwater for a mm -hmm. second. What are, what are some of the ways that we can deal with this issue of, of groundwater overdrafting? So everyone across the valley is going to have to develop plans to manage their groundwater basins. Now, there are some basins where if you look at the accounts. Um, it's interesting you say the word accounts because yeah. I was just thinking as you're talking, it's a bank. It's a bank. It's, it's a water bank. It's a bank. And people need your, to think about water's that down there. You know, water. You got inflows coming in, and you got people taking water out. So mm -hmm. it's very much you have to think about it like but a bank account. There's been more account. being taken out than it's going in. More right. So it, so it's it's starting to it's running a deficit, and so in places where you've got that deficit, people are going to have to over time plan on getting that bank account into balance. They don't have to do it overnight, but they're going to have to to make serious progress. So the first key step is actually. Figuring out your numbers, and we don't have good math on all of the. So we really the don't know how much how much water is there or how much it could hold. Well, or do we? We we have some idea, but what we don't know always is how much is coming out. You know, who's taking? How many straws are in the in the basin, and how much is coming out, and how much is actually actively being put back in? And so, that accounting has to get better. So no, they didn't have to prior to the this law. They didn't have to report that. They didn't have to report it. They didn't have to even measure it. So in some places, they, they haven't been, been measuring that. 
Um, and you know they're going to they're going to have to do that. Some places are ahead of others on that. I would say in across the valley. So, how do you suggest we we manage the groundwater reserves then that we do have? So, you know, I think a key thing is incentivizing people to add more water to recharge water. So right now we're in a in a wet uh, year. Fortunately, after mm -hmm. some years of drought, there's a lot of extra water around. Um, you want to get that into the ground. And you can get that into the ground through recharge basins, which are n places that are really good for water seeping into the ground. Usually on the periphery of a town. Often on uh. the periphery of a town, sometimes right in towns. Right. Like Fresno has some. We do. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, but you, know, you want to make sure you manage those and you protect those areas so that they, they're available for that. But then you also need to use farmland, because there's a lot of it. There are 5 million acres out there. A lot of that is on, on soils that are good for recharge. So it could be fallowed farmland that you use for recharge? It could be fallowed, or you can also use the, you know, during the winter and, and early spring, when it's not the growing season yet, you can, you can use the, the, the cropland for, as a place to recharge. Seems to make a lot of sense. Yeah. So acknowledging there's no silver bullet here. Mm -hmm. uh, um, what needs to be done to erase the water, the valley's overall water deficit? Um, what are some options? I mean, I think one thing you talked about were trading programs and those right. kinds of things. Right. So, you know, I think you have to look at there. There are some options for expanding mm -hmm. the, the, the pie, and that includes capturing extra runoff. You know, that's an option that, that's going to help. Um, there are some ways to repurpose water. So, you know, oil down in Kern County, on the east side of Kern County, there's some oil wells that have water that looks like it's probably of sufficient quality for certain kinds of agriculture. You know, that adds to the pie. Different ways like that. And then for the part about managing demand and reducing use, if you have trading among farmers, uh, you can reduce the costs of reducing demand. Because some, some fields are just more productive than others. And that farmer might be willing to take some, some funding uh, in exchange for making his water or her water available to somebody else. Any suggestions on dealing with the water and air quality challenges? So this is going to be a key thing where kind of looking for cooperative ways to manage this is important because we're, you know, just to give you a big picture idea of the numbers, as much as half a million acres of cropland could come out of production over time in order to bring the water uh, balance into, you know, get, get the water bank into balance. And that is, you know, looking at maybe 10% of all irrigated acreage. If that's just left there to sort of, you know, to be dust, that could be bad for, for the air quality. But if you manage some of that for habitat, um, that could be, you could get some ecosystem benefits. You might be able to use some of it for solar. People are looking at that. So there are ways for farmers to get benefits out of it and for you know, other benefits for air quality and for habitat. We've only got about 30 seconds left. Mm -hmm. I want to ask this one last question. You argue in your report that local and regional institutions are ill-equipped to develop effective solutions for the region. And you said that state and federal agencies often don't coordinate or sometimes are even across purposes. So what are the challenges and opportunities with uh, better coordination and cooperation? So it's clear that cooperation and coordination are going to be key to making all of these things work, you know, taking it up really to the next level. I think folks in the Valley are starting to realize that, but they still need to really figure out, you know, how they're going to make that work at the local, at the local level. Well, I want to thank our guest, Alan Hanek with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute and director of their, their Water Policy Center for joining us. You're listening to the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition on KMJ. The San Joaquin Valley, California's largest agricultural region and a vital contributor to the U.S. food supply, embodies the state's most difficult water management problems, including groundwater overdraft and contaminated drinking water. 
A new report from the Public Policy Institute of California explores the key challenges and promising solutions. The lead author of that report is our guest, Ellen Hannock, the director of the Public Policy Institute of California's Water Policy Center. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. Everyone has an opinion on water, but what are the facts? Our guest is Ellen Hannock, the Director of Public Policy Institute of California's Water Policy Center. She certainly knows those answers to those questions, and she's actually the lead author of a recent report that takes a comprehensive look at the Valley's water challenges, particularly the issue of groundwater overdraft and water quality. Uh, here's a copy of the report, um, and we encourage people to take a look at it if they, if they got the opportunity. But let's start off by asking you some basic questions about, uh, about the San Joaquin Valley, things like population and growth and GDP, all those kinds of issues. What can you tell us about the San Joaquin Valley? So this is a very fast-growing region. Four million people expected to grow by another 1.4 million between now and 2040. That's a lot of growth. That's a lot of growth. It's one of the fastest-growing regions in the state. And it is also the state's largest agricultural region. Over half of all of the agricultural output measured in dollars is produced here in the valley. Very diverse set of crops and livestock products. The land use in the valley, I would assume then, is a lot, is going to be for farmland? So if you look on the valley floor, um, about 8 million acres, uh, uh, maybe eight, eight, 9 million acres, uh, nine, nine, yeah, and 5 million of that, about, a little bit more than that, is irrigated cropland. Wow. Another 3 million is unirrigated rangelands, open space. Cities take up about... 500,000 acres. So about one-tenth of, of the irrigated farmland uh, mm -hmm, area. Mm -hmm, okay. Mm -hmm. um, so what about groundwater? We're going to talk about that a little bit. Can you give us some statistics on groundwater and this whole issue of overdrafting? What's that about? So, okay. So people in the valley use two kinds of water. They use water that comes in through rivers, surface water, and they use water that's pumped out of the ground, groundwater. Um, if you look at sources of surface water in the valley, that includes water from the local watersheds, from the eastern, uh, from the mountains in the east, especially the, the Sierra. Yes, it's stored in dams, dams but it okay. comes from the rivers, San okay. Joaquin, the, the various tributaries to the right. San Joaquin, the Kings, the Cahuilla, the Kern, all up and down the east side. And then that water also goes down into the ground and, and provides groundwater. We also get water here in this region from the Delta, it gets pulled in from Northern California right. and is used here. Um, that combined uh, imports and local supplies makes up about a little bit less than 90% of total net water use, and the rest is extra groundwater that people pump. Yeah, and, and you're to. talking about uh, in your report about overdrafting. Specifically, right. what is that? So overdraft is when you're pumping more groundwater than, than it's getting replenished. And groundwater does get naturally replenished when it rains and also... Mm -hmm. You know, water comes in from the, from the mountainous areas into the ground. It gets replenished. It can also be replenished intentionally when, when folks apply water to certain places that are good for recharging. Um, if, if you're only using as much as you're replenishing, your groundwater levels will, will stay stable. It doesn't happen in droughts, though. It doesn't happen in droughts. And unfortunately, in the valley, it doesn't even happen in normal years. Okay. The only years where there's really net replenishment in this region are really wet years. And so when you have this overdrafting, bad things happen? Bad things happen. So one is just your wells go dry, you have to dig deeper wells. 
Um, the deeper you have to pump, the more energy costs you have, so it gets, gets more expensive to pump it. It also is causing land to sink in the Called valley. Called subsidence. Subsidence. And when that's just happening on farmland, it's not maybe such a big deal as if it's happening in a city. But if it starts happening around roads and around canals. Canals. And then what I've read also is the canals that are less efficient in the movement of water. Oh, yeah. So now that. Big not time. Even, yeah. So there's this big canal on the east side of the valley that really connects a lot of the agricultural areas called the Frank Kern Canal. That has lost over 60% of its capacity. Wow because of this subsidence or land sinking. Yeah, um, so given all these surrounding problems with overdrafting, the state enacted this thing called the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, SAG, Sa Sigma? Sigma, Sigma. They call it, for, uh, for short. Sigma. It's Friends fun. call it Sigma, you know. Okay, in the fall of 2014. Um, so what's it supposed to do generally and what's it supposed to do in the valley in particular? So it is all about asking, requiring local water users in groundwater basins around the state to organize themselves, create groundwater sustainability agencies, develop groundwater sustainability plans, and start implementing those and get to sustainability by the early 2040s. The valley is ground zero for this. The valley has the largest overdraft as a region of the whole state, close to two, two million acre feet a year. Um, so about, you know, about 11% of total net water use is, is overdraft. And you know that's year on average after year, year after, after year. year. This is like a 30-year average looking at that. So counting for wet years and dry years, and the valley's ground zero also in terms of experiencing things like the dry wells, the subsidence, and just concerns with losing that drought reserve because you're always going to when you have groundwater, you want to have some of it there for droughts because you don't have the river flows during the, during the dry years and you, you need some water. And it's called groundwater banking, so we're going to talk about right. that. All right, we're going to talk about the balance of supply and demand of water in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Heppel with the Maddie Institute. Groundwater pumping, particularly during droughts, has led to a groundwater deficit. To close that deficit, groundwater sustainability agencies, or GSAs, will have to both increase the supply of water and reduce the demand for water. There are lots of options, some good, some not so good. Um, what are the most promising approaches? We're going to find out because Ellen Hannock is, a, is the director of the Public Policy Institute's Water Policy Center. She knows the answer to these questions. So let's talk about um, how do we get more water? This is a kind of the, the supply of water. What are the options? So there are a lot of things that folks are looking at. And we examined the range of different studies that are out there and tried to look both at how much water physically might be available from these options. And then the key question is, what would it cost and mm -hmm. how much of it is affordable? And especially we looked at this from the perspective of what's affordable for farmers who have to make a profit after buying their water. So one of the things you talked about was, was capturing more runoff. So, right. And that's, that turns out to be really the big option that looks the most promising from a, both a supply volume and a, an affordability perspective. And that's recharging groundwater. But that's also, isn't that dams as well? That could be. It, what, what, the, the basic category is what extra water is available in this watershed from the, from the Sierras um, mm -hmm. that is not currently already captured and used or required by somebody downstream. Right. And when we think of somebody downstream, that either means water right holders that have a claim to the water downstream or the environment. And so, you know, the, there are downstream claims on, on water, say, flowing out of the San Joaquin River, for example, but there are times when there is extra water. And this is a good example this year there are going to be times, the wet year, when 
there's going to be plenty of extra water beyond what everybody needs. But one of the things I noticed in your report where you're talking about how much farmers are willing to pay for water, you know, 300 to $500 an acre foot is a lot of money, probably mm-hmm. not willing to pay that. But dams like Temperance Flat, for example, right. uh, you could store more water, but it's, it's kind of Well, so then costly. you think about, okay, you have to, if you're going to capture this water, you got to store it mm-hmm. um, because our growing season is in the summer. So, you, you, you know, any, any, any year you need water to be stored in order to use it in irrigation. And so the question is, what combination of storage systems are you going to use? Right now, we actually have three kinds of storage. We have snowpack that mm-hmm. holds the water on a temporary basis right. and melts it kind of conveniently when the irrigation se- season is getting underway. Then you've got surface reservoirs. And then you've got actually a lot of water stored underground. Right. Um, so the question is, where do you, where do you augment relative mm-hmm. and what's the most cost-effective way to augment? What we find is that there's a lot of potential to augment without a lot of expense the by storing more underground. Yeah, the answer is right underneath your feet. Underneath your feet. <laughs> there but you go. That, that's not to minimize the role of the surface reservoirs. They play an important role in kind of holding the water temporarily so that you can get more of it into the ground. Well, let me ask you this. The other side of the equation is reducing the demand for water. What are some of the options? The options there, you know, the, the main option is agriculture reducing water use. And that, I say that not uh, out of any, not picking on ag or anything. It's just because ag is the, within the valley, the major water user. So that's where, you know, it's kind of like Willie Horton and why did he rob banks? Right, so that's, that's where, where the money is. is. That's, where the, uh, that's where the water is. But you uses. also make an interesting point about expanding water trading. Could you briefly talk mm-hmm. about that? And that is the idea that, so, you know, ag is going to have to be the main water use reduce, reducer. Um, but if Farmers are forced to do that in a very inflexible way, just sort of across the board. Everybody has the same proportional cuts, and you know every crop gets cut the same way. It's going to be very costly for the valley economy. What you want to do is encourage flexibility so that farmers can move the water to the fields and the, and the crops that are most, most profitable and productive. What we find is that you can reduce the costs by almost half by encouraging trading within mm-hmm. local groundwater basins. A market-based solution. Market-based solution. Yeah. So when you talk about an optimal portfolio, uh, when you're balancing water and, uh, supplies and demands, what would that look like? Optimal portfolio is combination of the most cost-effective supplies. So that's going to be especially groundwater recharge. But there'll be some other things to do too. We think you can get to about a quarter of the deficit with with those cost-effective supplies. And then the other piece of it is flexible demand management, and that means allowing water trading within these local basins, but also some trading across basins. Yeah, you also talked in here, I'm looking at your report, talking about incentivizing recharge on farmlands. Mm-hmm. What's that about? That is one of the cheap ways to recharge groundwater. I mean, we think about recharging groundwater. You see some places, like here in Fresno, there's le- leaky acres area. Mm-hmm. Right now it's mm-hmm. full of water. Um, these are recharge ponds. That's right. a good way to, if you've got a good area that really recharges fast. But uh, farmland, a lot of it is very suitable for recharge, and just getting water, you can spread it out uh, pretty quickly on a lot of farmland, you can get a lot of water in the ground in wet years. One of the things you, you mentioned about doing that is you need to have a system, kind of an accounting system that's going to make this work, right? Right. So you know how much money, how much water you're putting in, so how much water you can take out. Exactly. And more, more well. And well, and this is, so this is already being done in some parts of the valley now, down in Kern County especially, where they've been doing these formal banking projects with outside partners, so they've got to... You know, if somebody's going to invest in that, you, you got to show them the, the books, right? And with this new groundwater law, that is forcing folks to think about their groundwater accounts everywhere in the valley 
And that's going to create the conditions that make it possible to incentivize these kinds of new investments. Okay. Well, another big issue we're going to talk about is groundwater contamination and water quality. Like air quality issues, water quality issues require multi-agency cooperation. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Addressing the Valley's water quality issues aren't, is not going to be easy or fast. New groundwater regulations are adopted over the past decade is going to require numerous local and regional entities to cooperate and work together to fix this problem. Are they up to the task? We're talking with Ellen Hannock, the director of the Public Policy Institute of California's Water Policy Center, about those issues and others. So let's talk about water quality. Um, how bad is the problem and what's causing it? Well, there are a lot of different groundwater quality challenges in this valley. Um, from a drinking water perspective, the valley is really a hot spot for the state's safe drinking water crisis. A lot of these smaller communities are really a suffering. A lot of smaller communities. And, and they face problems both of some human-caused contaminants like nitrate, uh, which is from agriculture mainly, but also some industrial contaminants, but also some naturally occurring ones like arsenic. Yeah, and so you're talking about so the sources of water quality or nitrates and, and salts uh, naturally occurring, but the nitrates are kind of like a legacy problem, right? That's been well, yes and no. Okay. I mean, the, the the nitrate that's in your well today is probably from uh, agriculture that that was farming from 30 years ago. Right. But that doesn't mean that there's not an ongoing problem. There there continues to be nitrate. Uh, contribu contributions of nitrogen to the soils and the groundwater from agriculture. Basically, that's a fact of farming. Yeah, if fertilizing. You're, if you're using nitrogen fertilizers, which you, people have to use on pretty much on most crops, um, right. that, that's going to lead to well, you think some of you, it. You go to, yeah. Harm, uh, to Home Depot or something and you're buying stuff for, for potted plants. It's got nitrogen in that soil. Right. Actually, uh, you know, in terms of managing the, the mm -hmm. nitrogen, Farmers are much better at it than, than, than we are. Than homeowners are. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and salts are the other issue. Salts are the other issue, and that is partly naturally occurring here in the valley, but also it's imported partly through fertilizers, but also mm -hmm. partly through water uh, coming in from the delta. And that makes, if you have too much salts, I would assume that you, it's not farmable. You can't, you that, can't use it. Right. Whereas the nitrate is a problem for drinking water mm -hmm. and drinking water safety, the salts are really mainly a problem for ag productivity. Um, because what, what happens is it reduces yield potential over time, and it hits the most valuable crops first. So, you know, it, it means that farmers lose money when they've got a lot of salinity in their water. Yeah, and so we were talking earlier about uh, groundwater recharge is a really good way to improve the, 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 the supply of water. Mm -hmm. um, but how do you manage that and water quality? So this is going to be one of the tricky challenges now as folks really move to increase groundwater recharge is that they have to do that in ways that are mindful of the fact that some of these soils have legacy uh, pollutants in the mm -hmm. in the surface areas, but also they, if they're if it's active cropland, farmers are applying nitrogen. So how to do that? Uh, how to kind of balance those things? And you're seeing very interesting experimentation happening now. I was talking to an almond grower who was saying that you know some folks are now experimenting with not putting the fall fertilizer application on because if it happens to be a wet year like this one then it's, there's less risk of pushing that nitrogen down mm -hmm. into the ground and better chance for recharging the groundwater. You've also talked you know, something about clean crops. Clean crops, yes. Now, we're not going to have everybody in the valley switch to clean crops mm -hmm. just to be able to recharge groundwater, but there are some crops that either don't require nitrogen, like alfalfa, that actually fixes nitrogen, or turns out wine grapes and gra grapes or vineyards in general use very little nitrogen. So those are crops where... 
you can more safely apply that water, and they can tolerate the recharge too. So there, that's a if you've got that combination with good recharge soils, that that's a that's a good bet. More more, more grapes, okay? But that's right. You're talking about uh, also in your report about actions that you're recommending that should take priority to ensure both water quality and quantity. Can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that? So we also say that you know, in addition to focusing on improving recharge and and doing this well, that managing. The, for long-term overdraft um, and reducing that, people are talking about a glide path. And what that means is sort of gradually reducing overdraft over time rather than what I call cold turkey uh, right. sustainability. And that runs the risk of causing safe drinking water problems in terms of wells going dry. So if the local groundwater users want to do a sort of gradual path to sustainability, they have to worry about those, those communities that might lose their water water supplies. You know, one thing you mentioned in here, too, is, is something about dairies and, and managing the manure problem, frankly. Yeah. Um, so what, what about that? How does that address so the problem? The, the dairy industry faces the biggest challenges in terms of managing continued nitri nitrogen loading because they just have a lot of manure. Um, they're very productive, but that one byproduct of that is a lot of manure. So they have to get better at managing that on their farms. They apply that manure to their corn silage, especially. But also, it, it, we're recognizing now that there's just too much of it for them to use. So finding technolo technological solutions that can convert that manure to products that can be used on other farms. So, you know, pre precision kinds of uh, fertilizer that are made from manure. That's it's all, all part of the equation, I guess. Yeah. Well, up next, we're going to talk about the transition of land and uh, water use as a way to kind of make it beneficial for both farmers and the environment. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Ellen Hannock, the director of the Water Policy Center at the Public Policy Institute of California. Is there a way to transition land uses that both benefits the environment and the property owner? So, for example, um, what are some of the potential uses of permanently retiring or temporary following current ag land? Okay. So this is going to be a big issue for the Valley to face, which is we expect at least a half a million acres are going to come out of production in order to help bring groundwater basins into balance. And that's good for the long-term economy of the valley. So that's about, um, is that about 10%? It's of about 10% of irrigated cropland. Yeah. And it's not going to happen overnight. It'll happen over time. And we're suggesting you know, people have to really think about this carefully because if you don't plan it and it's just sort of done piece by piece, parcel by parcel, you're going to end up with not much to show for it and, and potentially actually additional dust problems, additional weed and pest problems for neighboring farmland and so on. So the alternative is to plan ahead, look at how you can stack benefits, kind of get this idea of multiple benefits where you know, which lands can be used for restoring soil health and getting credits for carbon storage, because that's mm -hmm. a big interest both of the federal government and the state government right now. Where can you... Solar would seem to be a, a, a big exactly. issue. Where can you put solar in strategically? That's, that can be, probably go on about maybe 10% of these lands. Um, you can do that in ways that can also get you habitat benefits. So again, something that can bring in some other revenues. Um, there are opportunities in some places to have recharge areas that are also serve as intermittent wetlands. Very good examples of this down in Kern County already that are you know, have become these great places for birds during wet years. I'm sure there are a lot of birds down there right now. Mm -hmm. um, and you can also think about on, on river corridors, getting more floodplain habitat, which is great from a, a, you know, an environmental perspective, recreation, but also saves water. And so thinking about all of these things together, um, you, you can actually mobilize a lot of different kinds of 
funding for this, and you can also build broad coalitions of support. But you can't do it unless you plan it. And that's, right. uh, you know, our message is now's the time to think about that. It's not going to happen overnight, but unless you plan it, it's going to not happen in the way folks are going to want I mean, it. I mean, when they talk about groundwater sustainability, they're talking about phasing this thing in over a period of years and not expecting it to happen overnight. Right. So it takes a while. Um, so what action should take priority? Priority, first priority now is getting some planning going at the, at the level not only of the local groundwater agencies, but at the level of counties. And ideally also, we're saying really at the level of the region for some of these things. It's just like, you know, the water issues are like air quality issues, right? Yep. It's not going to stop at a county line. Yep. And ideally, you want to think about strategically, you know, if you're thinking about wildlife corridors, for example, you know, they don't stop at a county line right. either, right? So thinking about how folks can incentivize that, kind of like the way, you know, the Valley has been trying to think about planning something like, you know, Highway 99 and kind of where to make investments. That's a, that's a backbone. You can think about some of these things as backbones too because you're going to want to do it while you're thinking about where you're putting new water infrastructure, where you're making, you know, recharge investments, where you might want to manage lands for salt. Um, and that, that's a conversation that really you want to bring thought leaders and partners from around the valley to that to that table. So there needs to be more regulative flexibility too, right? Yep. The planning is just a, you know, getting started is planning, but in order to do anything, you need flexibility on the regulatory side. There's some good regulatory approaches to help with this, but they're not easy and fast and quick enough. And you need to also be able to scale them up um, to, to make it so that not each landowner is going to have to go through that morass. Right. It's not um, a one-size-fits-all approach. Right. The other thing that you mentioned in your report was providing incentives and funding. Right. So we looked at the range of different funding sources, and there actually are more than you would think that, uh, sources that could be used for this. Um, and I think there'll be some new sources as the groundwater um, agencies start to, to develop their plans. Some of them are going to be setting aside, charging fees for extra pumping, uh, so that farmers have the flexibility to do that, but then you can use that money for this purpose too. There are a lot of different pockets, uh, buckets of money, but right now they're not, they're not being directed in, in, in a coordinated way. A coordinated, that's, a, that's a great way to end up. I want to thank our guest, Ellen Hannock, with the Water Policy Center at the Public Policy Institute of California. This is Mark Kepler for The Matter Report. Thanks for joining us. The views and opinions expressed in the Matter Report are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the California Channel or the Matty Institute. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the points and opinions expressed in the Matty Report, visit our website at mattyinstitute.org. The Matty Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute. Providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.